Hello and welcome to Man on the Clap Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast entitled Roy Keane and the Nature of Man. What is your image of Roy Keane as a football player? For me, when I, if I was to close my eyes and think of Roy Keane, he's wearing a Man United kit, he's got the captain's armband on, his head shaved and it's intense. He's either badgering a referee, he's either getting into it with the oppo, or even getting into it with his own players. He is desperately trying to get Manchester United to victory by any means necessary. Roy Keane in his playing career really had two haircuts. There was the head-shaven or his hair was unkempt. Like, he'd let it sort of grow for nine months. There'd be no gel, there'd be no sense of style. It was just, I've let my hair grow. This is what it looked like in the morning. Deal with it. Or the shaven head, which is always has sort of historical connotations. When you join the army, you have your head shaved. When you go into prison, you get your head shaved. It just has that sort of masculine connotations to it. You know, as much as he was a fantastic footballer, a forthright pundit, and you know has had some elements of success in a sort of hit and miss coaching career, his legacy is really purely masculinity. You know, it overshadows all nuance, and and it's inseparable. You cannot separate Roy Keane from being a man. You know, he is a granite monument to the shibboleth that there was a time when men were men. It is all how you view him now is that there's always it's that statement. There was a time when men were men. It is always set against a, a backdrop that that is waning. That that once that this has been lost, it can't ever be regained. It's a sort of concept that you know modernity is in some way, shape, or form damaging the concept of being a man. You know, and that if you look at sort of. Roy King's whole career. It was definitely, you know, his masculinity is you could set your watch by it, but it, it's set against a changing world. You have, you know, metrosexuality in the sort of early 2000s. You've had, you know, social strides. You've had, you know, gay marriage. You've got wokeness now. You've got the Me Too campaign and the aware growing awareness of sort of toxic masculinity and in some ways you'd almost think that maybe his sort of masculinity his maleness is almost a caricature but it, it isn't it is less so as he more than anybody else has created and sculpted this persona and he's certainly profited from it i mean when you talk about his football career now what you almost deal with is where have all the sort of midfield generals gone? You know, you talk about Roy Keane, you talk about Patrick Vieira, you know, Brian Robson, those kind of figures that almost seem to be you know, out of a boy's comic that somehow just you know, sort of burst into life off the page. And somehow that there's now in the modern game kind of a void, a lack of leadership. Because these sort of midfield generals, they'd be sort of box-to-box midfielders. They'd be you know, strong defensively. They'd be able to go forward and get goals, get a few assists. But they would essentially be the sort of centre point of the team. They'd have the captain's armband. They would lead from example. It was very much a situation where, ex- where leadership was very much a centralised. 
protagonist. There was one leader, you had one captain, and by you know, his will, that would then, you know, everyone would then follow. And there's so many reasons why that has, I suppose, changed. Whether that element of simplicity that you might have had in the 90s when you had lots of teams playing 4-4-2. Now, I always talk about the, the 99 United midfielders, almost that sort of platonic ideal of a 4-4-2. You, know, you have Giggsy, the left winger, with a bit of pace. You have Beckham, who doesn't have as much pace, but who has great cross. You have Scholes, who's the attacking midfielder that can you know, track back, that can tackle, albeit not particularly well. You had Keane, who was the leader, who was you know, more defensive of the player, but could also you know go forward and get goals. And it was completely balanced. There were, Everyone could score, everyone could defend, everyone tracked back. Everyone offered something slightly different. Whereby now... Really, when you're talking about sort of tactics, it's you have you know the double pivot. You have four two three one. There's a lot more uh, specialization, and as a result, whereby you know the midfield, your centre midfielders were very important. Now, really, it's almost sort of comparable to foosball, table football. The idea is is that you have you know they're almost midfielders. You you're either one or the other. You're either on the defensive side of it. Or you're on the attacking side of it, and no one seems, to, you know, there doesn't seem to be many midfielders that can would do the keying role. Either you're more like a De Bruyne and you're more affecting the, you know, final third, or you're like a Fernandinho or a Kante. I mean, the, there there is some crossover, but at no point, it, you know, whenever someone has tried, to, you know, whichever Chelsea manager has tried to turn Kante into a box-to-box midfielder, it's never really fully worked. You've lost something so much on the defensive side of it, and the gains that you've made in terms of his passing, in terms of his goals and assists, has never made up the difference. And so with increased sort of specialisation, where the leadership has gone to now is far more forward. When you've had someone like Cristiano Ronaldo, when you've had Lionel Messi, who were scoring industrial quantities of goals, who were really the centre point of everything good at Real Madrid and at Barcelona, is that that then took away from it. In other words, your defensive midfielders were basically there to keep things ticking over at the back. They weren't the heart and soul of the team. Messi and Ronaldo were... or you could say Kane or Fernandez, or if you were sort of a more defensive player who was the, the heart and soul of the team, you'd be looking at Virgil van Dijk, Vincent Company. That is far more, there doesn't seem to be as many sort of famous you know, defensive midfielders. You know, Fabinho gets a lot of credit, so does Fernandinho. And historically, you'd be talking about Claude McAuley, but they're not, they're nowhere near the importance of. Keane or Gerard or Patrick Vieira in that regards, and you know, with the increasing amount of, I've always said specialization, but also in the sense that with how systematized football is, it really, in many ways, let's say, take Man City. So, since Vincent Company has left English football, gone to Andlet to be a sort of player coach, really, it's Pep and the system that is the leader. It's There's no one that you would sit there and at any given moment would take on the mantle in a way that, let's say, Keane did in the second leg against Juventus when you know Man United were on the verge of going out and then somebody had to basically, you know, single-handedly force Man United into that final. And that was Keane. 
you don't really, you wouldn't see Fernandinho do it in the same way. You wouldn't imagine a, a Sterling or a De Bruyne. It, it would be the system that would work. It wouldn't be someone deciding to take fate into their own hands. So you, there's less of a need for uh, you know King Vieira style all rounders. It you wouldn't players aren't being developed in that way. It's far more collaborative. It's more about energy and positioning, which is why you know Fabinho, Kante, Fernandinho. It's a less obvious form of leadership. They are all leaders within their team. Fernandinho is massively respected. So is Kante. So is Fabinho. We've seen how different Liverpool's midfield looks when you take Fabinho out of it. But whereby in the 90s there was a massive sense that you had the, the need to win the midfield battle. Because you've now, you're dealing with systems, you're dealing with pressing, coordinating, attacking, movements, it, it, there's less room for someone to take that narrative position. There is not a need to... I have to take this team on my own to victory. Certainly not in the centre midfield positions. You know, you, with the football, you've got stratification. You have increased possession. You have strategic dominance. You have a top six and really a bottom four team. And so, you know, King doesn't need to impose himself on the game. You know, leadership back in those days was a singular point of presence. Now you have a far more far more statistical way of looking at things. If you do, if you keep enough possession, if you keep the expected goals down, if you create the chances, and if everyone does as they're supposed to, that will virtually guarantee victory more often than not. You know, Really what you have is more weeks than not, Man City will be expected to not just win, but win massively. It feels like every single time Burnley go to the Itihad, they always lose 5-0. You know, you have the group stages, and then you have the real tournament. You're, you know, most te- you know, you can pretty much name the half dozen teams that you expect to see in the upper ends of the Champions League. It's the same faces year after year, and it's really when you get to the quarterfinals is when the real competition starts, when Man City start to you know struggle. You know, it's not so much most games. You know, when you're dealing with the top six, you're dealing with lesser battle and more of a loaded chess match. You know, you don't have the you know, tackle from behind. You have larger squads. You have better pitches. You have VAR. There's less tolerance for violence than you had in sort of Keane's game, where actually there was less stratification. Teams were a lot closer together, and there was more room, and it was less tactically sophisticated. Maybe less overall fitness so why have you had this supposed decline in leadership and I think the difference is it's less rigidly hierarchical and it's less English and you know Irish centered you know when you talk about you know sort of successful teams in the 90s you know Tony Adams was the captain at Arsenal for you know, virtually the entire decade you know, you had Steve Bruce at United, which then came, when Steve Bruce left, that came became King. You know, and you had Cantona to a lesser extent. You had Shearer, you were at Newcastle, you had Sherwood at Blackburn. And, you know, even if you think of now the more traditional captains, you had Company. But Vincent Company was pre-Abu Dhabi, one of their last signs before the big takeover. Henderson is before Fenway Group took over, before Jurgen Klopp rocked up. You know, your leadership now is far more, and it's not 
it's not as if they're unconcerned by you know wins and losses, but it's not the whole thing. You know, you have a there's wins and losses on the ultimate arbiter of leadership. It's using the power of your platform to leave a lasting legacy on and off the pitch. You have one matter with the you know one percent initiative, getting other players to sign up to give up one percent of their salary. To you know, for good causes that that the player themselves chooses and plays a role in. You have Marcus Rashford fighting the government with regards to school meals and various other sort of causes. You have you know, football uniting to try and fight against the deluge of you know online hate that's being that's coming off of social media. And then if you really try and compare that with sort of Roy Keane's legacy as captain. Roy Keane at no point in the 90s was you know, arguing against the government. He wasn't trying to set up you know, foundations and wasn't you know, really in some ways using his platform as a footballer to produce a wider good. And the point was is, is that in the 90s that wasn't maybe expected. There wasn't the internet. You didn't have that level. So it, it's very easy to sit there and hammer him you know, retrospectively for that. But the point was is that Roy Keane wasn't that type of leader. He was very much wins and losses. If Man United are winning, great. That is the leadership that matters. If they are picking up trophies at the end of the season, that is the, the metric. And the point is is that in some respects, Keane's legacy, you know, in some ways you can say Manchester United carried on winning after he left. So, in some ways, you know, he was just one cog in the machine and that eventually, you know, they were able to get you know, Michael Carrick, they were able to get different players in, in the midfield. Or you could say, you know, in that his legacy of winning carried on. That it literally, the next generation of great Manchester United players still followed the, the Fergusonian and Keane intensity. And it was only really when Ferguson left and the last few you know, players started to leave, started to retire, that that kind of really broke down. And you now have this you know, the long road back to you know, top-end relevance for Manchester United. I think one element really that has, I suppose, probably changed the, the most, in terms of from Keane's day to the present day, and I think this covers a lot of other sports as well. His idea is that you no, sport no longer requires the the concept of the hard man. You know, you you in ice hockey is probably the best example is that you've had the decline of the goon, the enforcer. So the idea was is that every single team had a hard man, a goon, a big guy. That could basically, if the opposition was attacking, was you know, taking out your best player, who was generally a bit smaller, a bit faster, but you know your silkiest player, you would then have the goon who would come on and nail somebody else on the oppo. And if that came down to a fight, he was the best guy to fight. He was the strongest, the one who was most adept at it. You'd have a fight, and the crowd would go nuts. There'd be penalty minutes, and that was really how the sport was kept in check. No one could possibly hammer someone that hard because there'd be immediate retribution. In baseball, you have the concept of if your starter hits one of our star players, our pitcher will then retaliate your best player. And it was really this concept that sports was in some ways intrinsically a Hobbesian struggle. You know, that it really was that sports was nasty, brutal and short. And that sports careers could be nasty, brutish and short. And so really, what you needed, each team required a Leviathan. 
you know, to ensure mutually assured disruption with a balance of power. You have a hard man, we have a hard man. If this turns into a war, you will both be destroyed. And that's no longer the, the, the really the case anymore. You don't have that. If some, I think if you look at it on a, a sort of wider level, there's almost a sort of an implication that King's maleness is, is aspirational. It's that the the average man is unable to attain that level. So the fact that, that if you look at his sort of career in totality, the way how he stands up to Ferguson, the way how he stands up to the Irish FA, the way how he stands up to the media, the fact that he just, if he feels it, if he feels that he's in the right, he will go to the ends of the earth. If he has a grudge with someone, it will be an absolute grudge that will last forever and ever and ever. And that, you know, essentially, you know, compromise and modernity is leading to the weakness of men. In other words, you know, your salaried man has to, you know, listen to his boss. He has to, you know, do as he's told. And Roy Keane is this sort of ultimate personification. It's sort of almost like a dirty Harry kind of character. And the point is, is that when you look at sort of dirty Harry as a character, it'd be very easy again to sort of almost put him as this sort of right-wing caricature. But the point is, is that it has to be slightly more nuanced. If you know, Dirty Harry was just a dirty cop, it would be awful. It would just, you know, people, innocent people would die, the criminals would get away, that it'd be incompetent. So what it is, is that there, there has to be a purity with Dirty, Dirty Harry. And that has a sort of timeless quality to it. He's always going against the system, against the captain, against the mayor. And he's always in the right. He's always doing it for a the wider good, for victims' right. He's not just a cop that you know hammers criminals and you know, beats up every single person he arrests. When he attacks someone, it's because we guarantee to know that he is the bad guy. And it's that kind of strength recklessness and but it is always underpinned by you know right so in other words if you take dirty harry sort of two where the, the the concept is is that people have you know the murder squad have taken dirty harry's ethos but then corrupted it and so dirty harry then has to deal with this in the sense of you've learnt the wrong lessons from me and he then has to you know basically outsmart them outfire them and outstrength them. So we've started on the sort of principle that Roy Keane has created this. You know, Roy Keane has done several books on his life, he's given lots of interviews. There's a huge amount of evidence as to the fact that Keane has very much is the captain of his own ship. There are some sports stars where there's misperceptions and you know take Paul Pogba for example you know sometimes when a player looks like when it comes easy to them people then have that you know perception that they're they're not trying as hard you don't get that with Keane what you get is exactly what you see there, there isn't a huge amount of mystery when you're dealing with, with Roy Keane and so I suppose the counterpoint would be is, well, can you argue that Keane is a victim 
of the culture and the time that he played in. You know, both of his club managers you know, were alpha males in you know, bright, legendary alpha males in Brian Clough and Sir Alex Ferguson, both of whom really just bestrode their era in a way that other managers weren't able to. You know, you have Ferguson with the hairdryer, especially you know, the Ferguson of the you know, kind of early 90s, like when the Manchester United players were going to have a Christmas party. He was kind of you know, in his car, you know, tucked around the close, waiting for them to turn up so that he could then break into the party and break it up and throw them all out. Which just now you can't imagine a situation where Pochettino or Jose or or Pep would be in their car on a like, Thursday night tracking behind to find their young player to make sure they don't go to a party. It just seems unimaginable. It seems from a completely different era. But in many ways, if he's a victim, he's a well-rewarded victim. You know, he's had several managerial jobs, several assistant managers' roles at high-profile clubs. You know, assistant manager at Nottingham Forest, assistant manager at Aston Villa, assistant manager with the Republic of Ireland national team. You know, he's managed Sunderland, they're a big club. Ipswich, which has potential to be quite a big club. Ipswich have been in the Premier League and could be in the Premier League again if things were to you know, work out. You know, he is one of you know, Sky Sports' main pundits. He was a massive you know, main pundit for ITV. This is not someone that has suffered a great deal from it in that regards. But if that was the case, then surely someone like Graham Souness would be someone who would have it even worse. He came from an even more masculine era. You know, an even tougher footballing world where, you know, there weren't straight red cards for fouls. You could get away with elbows and punches to the face and tackles. And it was even worse. It was even more hierarchical, even more you know, alpha dominated. And yet, if you look at his sort of beginning of his manager career, you know, at Galatasaray and Liverpool and Rangers. Galatasaray is a classic example. When he's, you know, wins the Turkish Cup for Galatasaray. But the final's been held at, you know, I think Fenerbahce said, their biggest rival. And after the end of the game, he immediately, you know, takes a massive Galatasaray flag, runs to the centre circle and plants it in the middle of the, the pitch. And basically causes something close to a riot. And yet, if you look at the way how... You know, his later managerial career, the success he had at Blackburn and winning the League Cup in 2002 against Spurs. And it's really a testament to his capacity for you know, self-reflection you know, self to change. The fact is that you could do that in the early 90s, but that wasn't going to work in 2002. Now, of course, you know, as I've mentioned, Paul Pogba, there's been lots of you know, arguments over some of the things that you know, Graham Souness has said about him and whether some of that criticism was entirely fair or wasn't you know, biased in many ways or had some issues behind it. But I think there's, if you look at Graham Soon, especially this season, that there is, you get the, there's a sense of, lingering sense of pathos. This is a man that knows that times have changed, that he is in some ways slightly out of step. And that, you know, his punditry career is a lot closer to the end than it is the middle or the beginning. You know, the end is near. 
and you know, he's having to you know, effectively that his opinions are not necessarily represented by the mass of the audience. He's more of an outlier. Whereby if you look at Roy Keane, you don't see any of that kind of self-doubt. That sense that actually what I would have, you know, back in my day, there is, you know, Roy, you know Graham Sunes can't talk about back in his day. It's just a completely different world. You know, I think one of the, the most noticeable things about Graham Sunes was, you know, my wife was talking about how much, you know, he, she liked him. And, you know, how, you know, sort of sensible he was and blah, 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 and, you know, calm and everything else. And I was like, that is the Graham Sunes now. And basically showed some videos of what Graham Sunes was like back in the day. And she couldn't believe it was the same person, you know, the same perm, the same aggressiveness. You know, there has definitely been a a mellowing out, whereby you do not get the same sense that Roy Keane has mellowed out or has, you know, effectively changed his opinion or is, you know, working towards, you know, opinions that would be more sort of cutting edge, you know, more sort of next generation stats and things like that. I mean, there's a great story that is told really about when Roy Keane joined Manchester United from Nottingham Forest. Originally, he was supposed to go to Blackburn, Blackburn would pouring huge amounts of money, all making big money signings. And Daniel Gleish, the Blackburn manager, pretty much thinks it's a done deal. Ferguson comes in and Manchester United come in at the last moment and effectively, you know, snatch him away. So Keane decides, you know, makes the signing, decides to go on holiday and he gets this sort of very aggressive phone call from Kenny Dalglish, basically suggesting that Kenny Dalglish is going to find him and teach him a lesson. And you just think, could you imagine that happening today? So you know, a manager leaving a voicemail suggesting in some way, shape or form that he was going to track you down because you decided to move to the oppo and he was going to basically give you a bit of a scene to. It's just, in many ways, a different world. And there's a sort of wider question of how has that impacted Roy Keane in terms of his experiences, in terms of what he brings to sort of punditry now? I mean, I find it a very exhausting form of manliness. You know, it's very much unbending. You know, it's strident. It's aggressive. It's uncompromising. It's entirely sort of self-evident. It's harsh, and it's obsessed with truth. The idea is, is that you know. Is with when you listen to Roy Keane for a sort of an extended period of time, that there is a truth that some pundits just don't seem to want to admit. You know, they sort of they'll use niceties, they'll kind of tiptoe around the issue. He will say, "I think Team A are rubbish because." Whereby someone says, "Well, they yeah you know, they've got room for improvement." He would just come out and say, "I think they're useless," and. There's almost a sense of being sort of economical with words. Like, you know, don't, don't, don't beat around the bush. Come straight out and say exactly what's on your mind. You know, it's black and white. It is right and wrong. There, it, it, there isn't a huge amount of room for nuance. And it's a, it's a default sense of machismo. And yet... One of my favourite episodes of Red Dwarf, um, season 5, episode 2, and it's the, the Inquisitor. And it's the idea is that 
it's a sci-fi show, not to go into huge amounts of detail, but basically this they end up on the crew of Red Dwarf end up on this prison ship and it's deserted and what it is is that they they are then basically scanned by the prison ship for their guilt. And they are judged. But the thing is, they are judged by themselves, by a hologrammatic version of themselves. I probably butchered the, the explanation somewhat, but the point is, is that how would Roy Keane, the coach manager, fare against the Inquisitor, against Roy Keane, the pundit? I suppose that, that's got shades of, sort of Street Fighter 2, really, when you'd fight two of the same characters, but one would have a different colour. And I think the element is is that you know he left Sunderland in stages as a manager you know, he was prevaricated over whether to stay or not so he didn't just resign he kind of for two or three days sat on it and you know, some of the players felt you know sort of betrayed by that that he didn't really want to finish the job off you know, and there was some talk when he was at you know, Ipswich and Sunderland to a lesser extent after defeats he would sort of lock himself away for days not eating not you know not washing and so wouldn't be attending training. Because he just couldn't deal with the, the, the defeats. And you sit there and think, well... The element of not really wanting to tough it out. Despite this you know, need to be the alpha of all time. Always the toughest person in the room. Which always has that sort of element of insecurity behind all of that. It's the fact that he never seemed to really want to you know battle out to the absolute end there was always a point where he would sort of pull off the you know escape hatch you now the same similar thing sort of happened to Aston Villa yeah you know, Paul Lambert and Villa were really struggling at this point and you know they got keen in the assist manager sort of you know, a boost and essentially after a few sort of months he ends up quitting the job you're saying, well, I can't really combine this job and, ma and being the assistant manager of Ireland. But at this point, it was several, you know, it was, I think, January time. And really, it was several weeks before, you know, Ireland were due to play in the next sort of international window. And the thing is, you took that job knowing this situation would happen. But again, you weren't sticking around. You weren't going to do it for a few more weeks. And then after the international break, after, you know, maybe Villa had got out of trouble or you'd stay to the end of the season just to, you know, do your absolute most to help Villa out in this sort of time of crisis. And there was also this you know, statement he made in one of his books, the idea that one of the problems he sort of had at Ipswich was almost sort of psychosomatic. You know, it, the idea is, is that he wasn't happy there because all the teams he'd ever played for, so that's you know, Forest, uh, Manchester United and Celtic, all of their rival main sort of rivals played in blue so you're talking about Leicester you're talking about Rangers you're talking about Man City the fact that Ipswich play in blue that just kind of like I know all the teams that I support all the teams that I support are sort of red or not blue you know for Ireland it's green for Celtic it's you know green and white and it's just like well would Roy Keane the pundit take an excuse from a manager saying he wasn't happy because of the colour of the kit you just don't imagine it. He'd hammer that person into the absolute ground of that, how ridiculous that was. You know, and you have all of these, you know, sort of moments of, there's always an element of controversy floating around Roy Keane. I mean, the sort of 
classic example was the, the book signing in Brogley. So basically Roy Keane has written a, a book and it's just come out and it's selling. The thing is, when you write a book, you are going to draw attention to yourself. That's just the fact of life. And the fact is that he's done several books. This is not just a, oh, I'll do a cursory one book autobiography long after I've retired, long after my playing career, my managerial career, my punditry career is over. Once all that's said and done, I will put on the record once. He's done a couple at least. And so he's in the hotel, you know, on international duty with Ireland as assistant manager, and someone in the hotel bar is reading his book and goes over and asks him to sign it, and he says no, and it all kicks off to the point which the, the Irish police, the Gardaí, are essentially called to sort this all out. Eventually it all kind of went away, but it was still a huge distraction, and you just thought, if you're going to do books, people are going to go and ask you to sign it. That's just it. And how long would it take him just to sit there, grab a pen, write to Dave, thanks for buying, blah, 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 love Roy Keane. How long would that have taken? A minute? You know, it's what you sign up for when you take the money for the book. And then you have this sort of WhatsApp controversy you know, with John Waters, with injuries, Harry Arter, and... It was toxicity. It was sort of a bullying style approach. So basically there was a WhatsApp conversation just outlining some of the issues that had been basically happening in the Republic of Ireland national team. And it got out. It was from a sort of players only group, but it got leaked. And it just basically sounds like Roy Keane was effectively stalking around the, the, the national team camp and if you weren't training if you had an injury or you were managing injuries so some of the players were like look we can't train three days in a row he was basically just almost going like are you soft why aren't you out there why aren't you showing commitment you know being very aggressive very macho you know lots of you know, c words lots of w words lots of, you know, just lots and lots of swearing and the sense that you know, he's basically challenging these players. He's calling them out. And, you know, some of the players, you know, John Waters basically squares up to him and they almost have a fight, you know, with Harry Arter. He just basically walks away. And it's just, you just see, imagine this sort of massive dark cloud over the Republic of Ireland national team. You can imagine some players not wanting to go there into that kind of atmosphere where it is Roy Keane is challenging you at any given point. And you then have this sort of Robbie Keane breastfeeding comment is that Robbie Keane's you know, partner has had a baby and whether he'd be able to play. And so basically said, well, you know, he should be fine, you know, as long as he's not breastfeeding. You know, it's that kind of casual, you know, sort of male banter. It is basically having a dig in some way, shape or form. So the point is, is that there is elements, you know, the success he had at, you know, Sunderland and taking them from the really bottom of the championship you know, all the way to the title. There was, you know, under Martin O'Neill, you know, Ireland had elements of success. There is a sense that Roy Keane, within himself, probably could be a talented coach. But all of the baggage that you bring along with him, all of these controversies, all of these sort of micro and macro aggressions... And you're really questioning whether that is, whether it's worth it. Whether the sense that, could Keane, is Keane going to stay around long enough? Or is he going to have a blowout? 
if the first time things start going wrong, is he going to lock himself away? Is he going to basically you know, throw his toys out of the pram? Is he going to fall out with players? Is he basically going, is this thing going to explode in your face very quickly? I mean, you, you, you sort of compare the sort of controversies around the Ireland squad and with comments that, you know, Roy Keane made to Mick McCarthy. You know, when and I've discussed probably in more detail further on in the podcast about two thousand two World Cup and his expulsion, but you know, who was more successful, you know, for the Republic of Ireland? Mick McCarthy as manager or Roy Keane as assistant manager? Yeah, you know, you'd argue definitely that Mick McCarthy's team had more success and played better football. Now you could argue, you know, in defence that, you know, McCarthy had the arguably better squad, but you know, I think if you, from my personal experience of watching the Irish national team during this sort of O'Neill Keane era, I mean, it took pragmatism to the, the nth degree. I mean, some of their football was basically unwatchable. I mean, it was very, so uh, uh, somewhat regressive. And it was almost to the point was was the cure, you know, being worse than the disease itself. You know, they were successful at home. You know, they had a good home record. They were able to... They outworked teams. You had to respect them on that level. They were not maybe the most talented team, but they had a game plan. They stuck to it. They were able to win their home games. They were able to get enough points away from home to really get to your, either to the tournament or to at least you know, there or thereabouts the playoffs. But there always seemed a limit, as if at some point, you know, either at the playoff level or in the group stages, there would be a moment when they just wouldn't have enough it was the games were very tight they it was rela- reliant on great goalkeeping and Ireland taking whatever chance they could have from set pieces there didn't seem to be much of an sort of upside it was this is the maximum we can get out of you but there is a limit to how far this Irish team really can go which I think sort of neatly leads on to I think there's another film that, whenever I think of Roy Keane, that sort of comes to mind. It's a, um, it's a 1991 um, Albert Brooks film. It's called Justify Your Life. It's basically this um, account executive gets killed in a car crash. And effectively what happens is you go to a purgatory-like place. And there's essentially a court case where you have to justify how you've lived your life. And if you do so, you then go up to the sort of next level of consciousness. And if you fail, you have to go back on, you get another life and you have to learn about, you know, not to you know, embrace your fears and other bits and pieces like that. And I think the key question then comes down to is, can Roy Keane justify his professional life? I mean, take the, the Alfie Inger Holland situation. We'll start at the beginning. It's 1997. It's Manchester United are playing Leeds United, big derby. At Ellen Road, and essentially, you know, the the game sort of petering out. Long ball goes over the top, and eventually, Alfinga Holland, the defensive midfielder, is just seeing the ball out. Roy Keane is chasing it for long, you know, forlornly into the box, and Keane just sort of makes a little bit of contact with Inga Holland, but his knee basically explodes, and he goes down in a heap in the box. Now, from Inga Holland's perspective is that Roy Keane has just initiated a bit of contact off the ball. He's now lying you know, flat on the penalty area with his arms stretched out. And it's like, oh God, is he basically diving and trying to get a penalty? 
So Inga Holland, in the heat of the moment, basically goes up to him, not realising that Roy Keane's knee has basically exploded, and has a few words, and gets you know, dragged away, and in the end, the realisation is that Keane's actually seriously hurt, was out for the rest of the season, out for a few months, and the sort of knee problems carried on, really, for the rest of his career in that regards. You know, Inga Holland doesn't come out of this looking brilliantly well, but again, it is the you know, mid-90s, it's Leeds, Manchester United. There is a lot riding on this game. There is a lot of passion. It is, and they're tough men. Let's be completely honest about this. And so a few years later, Inga Holland's now playing for Man City. King's still playing for United. Big, you know, Manchester derby. And in the intervening time period, Holland and Roy Keane have played, on the, you know, played against each other two or three times without really any issue games petering out and you can see it on YouTube and basically Roy Keane just absolutely goes for Inga Holland's knee with his studs and detonates his knee. It's a filthy challenge. There's absolutely no logical way that Roy Keane was going for the ball. He has gone to take Inga Holland out. It's a straight red and it's senseless vitriolic violence and the point is is that Inga Holland's career you know it's one of those situations where the extent of the injury doesn't become immediately apparent. So a few days later, he goes away and plays for Norway international level. But from that moment onwards, his career goes in a completely different direction. He you know, doesn't play very much and eventually his career ends. Whether it's fully fair to call it a career-ending injury, I think it is virtually on the line. It, you know, Inga Holland's career was never the same after that point, and I think his career ended early as a result of that tackle. And so there's so many aggravating issues with this. It's the amount of time that's elapsed. You've had four years to deal with you know, what's happened. You've played him several times without there being any sort of issue, but at this moment, you've now decided, actually, I'm going to get my revenge here and now. And the reason this comes out is not at the time he writes a book, ghostwritten, uh, Eamon Dunphy, the Irish journalist, is the, the ghostwriter. And in this book, essentially, Roy Keane says, I've been waiting for a few years, this was the opportunity, and I went for him, and I'm not sorry about it whatsoever, and, you know, that's the way the world is, and that he has sort of no regrets from it. And so there's, you then think, well, that's even more aggravating. You've got an element of a sort of lack of remorse. You're using it to sell books for your personal profit. And it's also sort of cowardly in the sense that Holland would have had to had next to no idea it was coming. He wouldn't have been sitting there thinking, oh, God, Roy Keane's going to, you know, he's coming after me. So you've got no way of defending yourself as Keane has no intention of challenging from the ball. If you watch the video on YouTube, you will see what I mean. So eventually it comes up, he get, Roy Keane gets a massive ban, gets a massive fine as a result of this book. And his argument was is that actually the ghostwriter has effectively misquoted him and kind of made up this sense that actually that it really was deliberate and that actually he didn't intend it as a career-ending injury. It didn't mean to hurt him, it was just a crap challenge. And the ghostwriter goes you know, into this... Um, Hearing and just says, no, that's not true. Roy Keane said what he said, I wrote it down. I don't know. 
I my personal view is I, I get the feeling that Roy Keane meant to seriously hurt Alfie and Gahorland, saw the opportunity, did it. Mm. And I think that's a horrible, disgusting thing to do to what a fellow pro. I mean, look, there is some element of defence. I mean, Inga Holland was a tough, uncompromising player. And he had several years earlier stood over a prone injury, prone, injured, and in pain Roy Keane and accused him of face, feigning injury. I can understand how that would set Roy Keane off. But that there's no fundamental excuse for holding on to that thought for four years and then doing that kind of violence. Inga Holland did not mean to injure Roy Keane. It was... A complete accident. It was one of those freak injuries that happened. It was there was no malice involved, and you could clearly see that Inga Holland had no idea. And had he had known that Roy Keane had picked up that serious injury, I don't think he would have sat over him and shouted at him for feigning injury. Yeah, that's just common sense. Yeah, it was a heated, passionate derby. They were both men of their era. Neither of them were angels, and they were both well-versed in the you know, dark arts of defensive play. But in the end, you have a, as a professional, hurting somebody else and, and damaging, and if not ending their career, is just, for me personally, an unforgivable thing to do. And then to basically you know, utilise... The fact is, is that if he'd done it and just kept quiet about it, no one would have ever known. That would have been for him, his conscience, and whatever higher power that he, he believes in. But the fact is, you've had to tell the world. You Even before the book was published, you could have sat there and take that bit out of the book. But he hasn't. He's signed off on it. And it's almost as if you're proud of what you've done. And that you wanted the world to know that you did that. That it wasn't just a terrible tackle. That, you know, people at the time thought it was just a crap Roy Keane challenge. He could be, you know, a hard tackler. You know, it, people do horror challenges who aren't terrible who aren't terrible people. You Accidents can happen. It takes a moment. You know, anyone that's played football has at some point done a bad challenge. It's not malicious. But his one really was malicious. So, okay... Take the prawn sandwich comments. You know, if we're going to do the next stage of you know justifying Roy Keane's professional life, I suppose in some ways what he said it was in the kind of late nineties, early two thousands, and his argument was is that there were too many you know fans who were there eating prawn sandwiches in the executive boxes, too many sort of fans who were just there for the day trip who weren't making enough noise and weren't making enough atmosphere in Old Trafford, which was affecting the team and their home form. And their ability to win the league. And at its heart it speaks to Keane's overriding arrogance. In the sense that he, as, as basically as captain, has self-appointed himself as the arbiter of the Old Trafford crowd. Which then asks all these sort of deeper little questions of well, what's Roy Keane's version of a good Old Trafford crowd. And it appears to be something like a seething mist of male working class testosterone. It is local people... People who work, you know, it's almost this implication that, it's, that crowds as they used to be back in the day it was that people that worked hard during the week would sit there, go down the pub, go to football, and get any of their kind of you know pent up aggression out of the way. You know, it's almost akin to a sort of pre Taylor report, you know, and the idea that. You know, it's almost as if if we could go back to terracing and that kind of atmosphere and that kind of seething cauldron kind of situation. That's what Roy Keane thinks that a football crowd should be. 
And it's also got an element, a sort of an added touch that really any criticism of that could be viewed sort of through a, a class prison. That you're supporting the sort of commercialization of the sport and really the sort of disenfranchisement of the traditional, you know, white male working class sports fans. And that somehow, you know, that letting in sort of, you know, executive fans, having executive boxes, having slightly higher ticket prices, is you're, you're letting in middle class people and you know, richer people. And it's really just spoiling the whole thing. And that it's just not what a proper football crowd is. And yet, the, the flip side of that coin is, is that you're really saying that football crowd should be a white, male, pale you know, least working class, or you know, or an atmosphere where you know, even work middle class people. You've had a bad week at the office. You can go into Old Trafford and you can you know let rip on the oppo, the linesman, the referee, whoever you you know feel has wronged you at any given point. Instead of really, you know, as opposed to the idea of opening up the sport to women, to minorities, to have a you know completely different dynamic of crowd that is representative of you know. Society as a whole. And the point is is that there's an element of sort of more hubris in that he ignored the commercialization of the United brand. The the I but that was the underpinning of the Fergie dynasty. The fact they were selling, you know, a third kit, an away kit, that you had, you know, the Man United team thought, that you then had MUTV that was really Pouring huge amounts of money into the club, which was allowing them to make you know, the Yap Stam signing, Ruud van Nistelrooy. And the point is, is that he, you know, in sort of comments later, was like, "Well, the next week the crowd were great." So it wasn't as if this was a sort of key issue to him. He was making his point, and once he'd made it, that was the end of it. He wasn't really going to look into this issue any any deeper in that regards. So in his defence, you can say that there, there was an element of bravery in criticising your own fans. And that, you know, a lot of other people, managers, you know, players, and owners, have really ignored this these kind of issues and the changes of the crowd and the sort of dynamic and the sort of socio-economic status of the crowd. You know, for sort of self-interested reasons. They were high happy to get the middle class pounding because you could then charge 30, 40 quid a ticket then up to 50, 60, 70, they would then go to the superstore and spend 75 quid on a kit, X amount, and then suddenly, you know, your bottom line has massively improved in that regards. But still, for me, he's still criticising, you know, the fans. He's decided that, in his opinion, they weren't up to his standards, and as a result, they were fair game. Which then brings you to an interesting sort of point, is that... For all of the machismo, all of the the absolute maleness of, and the idea that Roy Keane's maleness is this type of very stylized, something that's been covered in lots of literature and films, you know, westerns, war films, that kind of you know sort of cultural worship. The idea is that that is what a man should be and that's what he should stand for and that's how he should act and yet has anyone really in sort of British sports history received so much forgiveness I mean so much of Roy Keane's sort of world view is black and white right and wrong 
and there's sort of no room for forgiveness. If you have a grudge on someone, you hold that grudge until the end of time. And yet, he, all through his career, you've had the Manchester United fans, you know, forgiving him for the prawn sandwich comment. You've had, you know, his teammates and ex-players and dealing with his MUTV comments when they lost to Middlesbrough, you know, during his playing career. And he just lambasted them all, basically said they were crap, for the want of a better word. And yet, there was, they, all of those people seem, you know, still a United legend, as far as he's where he gets on mo- pretty well with most of his you know, teammates from back in that era. So, yeah, theoretically, by the Roy Keane kind of manliness scale, surely he should have been outcast, but, you know, by say, stating these, you know, things that you're never supposed to, you're not supposed to criticise your teammates, you're not supposed to criticise the atmosphere, you know, he criticised Ferguson, you're not supposed to criticise the manager. Now, yes, he left Manchester United, but that was really at the, the back end of his career, at which point... That was this was a rapidly diminishing Keane, and I suppose in many ways because he wasn't able to do it on the field, he was doing it off the field. You know, there was this huge fallout with Ferguson, you know, that led to his departure from Celtic. Yeah, Roy Keane, in some ways, was almost arguing I should still be front and center of this team, and really Alex Ferguson was almost sort of pushing him towards being a role player. And you know, Keane's spell at Celtic didn't last particularly long. It wasn't particularly successful. And I think there was this element of him being unwilling to drop down the leagues and divisions and to accept being a diminished player and have a diminished position of power. I think it's fascinating that this very tough, very hard man didn't really ever fancy playing in the championship, wasn't going to prolong his career. If he wasn't at the top level, Roy Keane was not interested. Completely just wasn't going to get involved. In that, you know, I mean, some sort of players have very happy career, you know, sort of Indian summer careers where they go down into divisions where they you know, they'll take you know, their local club up or they'll find a different role and you know, they'll be sort of a and they might go to a team that's just been promoted and keep them in the Premier League, kind of what Neil Revan did in the sort of late nineties for a couple of years, but Roy Keane didn't want to touch that. And, you know, you have Irish sports fans, you know, forgiving him for, you know, 2002 and letting him become assistant manager again without, you know, kicking off. You know, if you compare it to Don Revy, who quit the England job to go off and, you know, manage in the UAE in the 70s, he was blackballed. He, yeah, once he took that coin, he was never going to come back into English football in any meaningful role. You know, if you decide that you don't fancy playing for your team at the World Cup, and especially when your country doesn't qualify for every single World Cup, and you were the best player, and you were the captain, and you decided to basically nuke it, because you you weren't, it wasn't so much not getting his own way, because you were unsatisfied with the circumstances, you know, it's amazing that, you know, that he was, rel- you know, with, you know, there are reasons, again, I'll go into a little bit further on detail later on in the podcast, but the point is, is that they could very easily have said, you know, you made your bed and you lie in it, you know, not our problem, you know, you're a Judas, and that they didn't. You know, and your British sports fans with the Harlan controversies, the Irish bullying rounds. You know, he still has a prominent job at Sky Sports. You know, he has the you know, he was prominent for ITV for several years. 
you know, even if you look at some of the comments he's made, you know, with David De Gea, when De Gea made an error against uh, Spurs, and he said, well, if I was in the, in the dressing room, I'd be basically pushing up against the wall and essentially decking him. I'd be screaming and shouting at people. You know, and that is just... It's, you're advocating violence. You're saying that actually dressing rooms should be a place where if you know, the, the captain and the alpha dog believes that you know, things aren't up to his level of standards, you kick off. You actually bully people. You, you, know, you commit acts of violence if it gets the, the results that you want. I mean, you have all the baggage from the books and the interviews and all these bits and pieces that have sort of dripped out from his sort of coaching career. I mean, if you look at, there's a classic example when he was manager at Sunderland and they spent a load of money on Craig Gordon, the Scottish goalkeeper, who had a really pretty good career. And it's pre-season and he's let in a goal from 30 yards and Roy Keane is not happy about this. Now, the point is, it's pre-season. It's not the end of the universe. You have goalkeeping coaches. You have time to you know, rectify any issues. So what his attitude is, is to say, actually, you know what? I could have saved that. I'm going to go and go in training and basically if you can get the, the ball past me from 30 yards, I'll pay you a grand. If you don't score, I will get 100 quid off you. And so basically he goes on to win £800 because he makes eight saves, tips one of them to the bar apparently. And it's like, yes, you have proved your point and you have got the £800, but is that actually particularly good you know, man management? Is your goalkeeper going to thank you for that because you've basically shown him up in front of the entire squad? And I think I, I link this to you know, his experience when he first made his debut for Nottingham Forest. He'd been signed for, I think, five, ten grand out of the Republic of Ireland, gone over, started playing for Nottingham Forest, and he was in the reserve team and building his way up. Anyway, they're playing an away, the reserve team playing an away game, I think, on a Friday, and he's expecting to start. He had to start most weeks, and this time he's kept on the bench, only gets 10 minutes at the end, so he's already annoyed. And he's told, look, you, you need to go to Liverpool, the first team are playing there, and he thinks he's just there to help out. So he immediately rocks up into the dressing room, starts helping the kit man out. So Brian Clough rocks up, and essentially he's welcoming his, hello, Irishman. Why even bother with the name? Nope, you're just Irishman. Here, is a pint of milk, down it. Point is, Roy King doesn't actually like milk, but no questions asked, downs the pint of milk, makes his debut on right, playing right midfield for Nottingham Forest. Does quite well the first few weeks. One, uh, one at the end of the games, a few weeks further on, he's sitting in the dressing room after the game, Clough's going up and having a bit of a word with each player individually, gets to, to Roy Keane and just punches him in the face. You know, no words, just decks him one. And, you know, you have this the history of the hairdryer with Ferguson. And it's just, and you can imagine what, you know, because this is, you know, he was in his early 20s, you know, hadn't been living in England that long, had just moved across from Ireland. And he's got this legend, this person who you would have, you know, for your whole life known as Brian Clark, you know, famous all across the world, and has just decked you one. And the point is, is that there's no semblance in any of this that he's ever sat there and said, that was wrong. That was not the way or how I should have been treated. That was a crap way to, to do any form of management. You don't learn anything by being punched in the face. And yet, it's, it's fascinating. There's an element in the press and with fans 
is a desire to sort of mythologize Kino, to mythologize this sort of period of time. And it's almost as if you're trying to sort of cover the sins of the past, because if you look into it too deeply and you start getting into some of the, you know, what Ferguson got away with back in the day, some of these sort of practices, which are basically just abuse. You know, if you look at anything from the class of 92, some of their initiations were just horrendous. You know, and some people say, oh, well, it made me the person I was today, but you can imagine some people being messed up as a result. So when this sort of, you almost feel like it's sort of this, these experiences sort of bleeds into his punditry. It's almost sort of a, a form of sort of cheap entertainment. You know, it's almost sort of, vi- in sort of envisage the Russell Crowe character from the Gladiator films. Like, are you not entertained? The idea that, you know, you have this very strident, very opinionated pundit that's very, that always seems on the edge that he could well get up and punch someone if they don't you know, agree with him, or if they say something he disagrees with. And it's not, you know that he wouldn't do that, but it's just, you do sometimes feel an element of tension when he's on uh, this the punditry side of things. So when you look at it, and we have this sort of classical view of, of what, you know, manliness should be, and it's very much to deal with, you know, sort of physical strength. It's very much to deal with, you know, sort of keeping your emotions in check. It's sort of the idealized. So you have sort of the Clint Eastwood characters in, the, you know, the spaghetti westerns. You have, you have sort of John Wayne character. You know, the John Wayne you know, movies or you know, westerns, war films. And yet, some of it, there's always an element with those sort of characters of being sort of somewhat enigmatic you know there's some things going on behind you know behind the the eyes but you don't hear about it you know they don't talk too much you know Clint Eastwood's character doesn't really even have a name in some of his western movies and yet if you compare that to Roy Keane there's never been a less enigmatic figure in British football history there is no mystery he has a ceaseless need to emote and explain Every last fallout and grudge to the nth degree. You know, and there's some element that if you were to take the Roy Keane sort of code of manliness or you know, the overall idea of what you consider the ideal traditional male sort of role model, there isn't a sense that you were sitting there every five minutes telling every single person about how you feel and there's no sense in his career that he's ever really, for any period of time, ever particularly sucked up anything. If he was unhappy about something, he would basically explode very quickly afterwards. It's like one of the story about him leaving the Republic of Ireland. It, you know, in his one of his books, it sort of starts off that he's already annoyed that he, you know, when they're going flying out to Japan because they're going via a couple of different cities instead of directly. You know, Dublin Airport is completely rammed and you've got all of this kind of baggage because you're going to be out there potentially for a month. So it's not as if you're just out there with a carry-on bag and that there's all of this sort of hubbub going along. So he finally gets onto the plane, you know, still probably in a little bit of a mood and then he starts watching the Will Smith, you know, Muhammad Ali biopic. And he, you know, sees, you know, 
and in his mind he sort of equates you know Ali deciding you know not to enlist and you know be drafted into the US army losing his heavyweight belts because of Vietnam and you know the racial issues around that and sort of compares it to then his own decision to basically you know get leave the you know Republic of Ireland national team at the World Cup and it's like that is nowhere near the same level I mean, it's hubristic in the extreme. If you're comparing you know, the pitches in, in the pre-training camp bit, when you've just rocked up to Japan before any of the group games, it's because the pitch wasn't watered because someone didn't tell them, the, the FIFA official, that the Irish people were gonna be, players were going to be training on it. It's annoying. It's annoying that the cones weren't there or the balls weren't up to the, the standard that Roy Keane thought and that, you know, there'd been a mistake and that the playing and that the 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 kit hadn't arrived yet. And there are elements of it that are were, were slapdash. There's there's no one's denying that. But you know, you're talking about the cultural and institutional racism that African American community faced in being drafted into Vietnam. You know, the fact that the FAA, the, the, the Football Association of Ireland, had some low-level incompetence and you know, there was an argument that you know, institutionally, they, at youth level, they preferred you know, players from the Dublin area, whereby you know, Roy Keane is from Cork and that's you know, a bit further out. But that's just, that's not the proportionality of response from Keane. It just seems a massive overreaction. You know, there's an element of petulance, an inability to control emotions and to work with others. You know, he basically says to Mick McCarthy, I didn't rate you as a player, I didn't rate you as a manager, I don't like you as a person, I think you're a wanker. You know, various, you know, there is a whole list of examples of Roy Keane using his tongue absolutely viciously. I mean, you would not want to get on the end of Roy Keane criticising you. It doesn't appear to be a very pleasant experience. And in some ways, you know, with Roy Keane, again, if you would do to the justify your life, his professional life, would Roy Keane, the pundit, accept what Roy Keane, the player, did? And I don't think so. I think you'd be like, look, tough it out. It's the World Cup. It's too important for your, you know, personal issues to then, you know, colour that. Especially if you're the captain, you're the leader, you're one of the best players. But I, I think he sees himself very much as a, an exception to the rule that his judgment is beyond contestation that he is on some form of you know higher moral plane that for what others would be you know weakness and treason or or mutiny or being you know a poor teammate to him is example of just how tough he is that he's the outsider he's the truth teller that he's principled he's tough he's unyielding you know, but the thing is, what long-term consequences can he ever face for his behaviour? Oh, he's had a few fines, a few suspensions, but he missed the World Cup. That's probably the biggest one. But in many ways, that's the peak of his own masculine self-image. You know, he's able to take this ultimate sacrifice, to take or to make that sacrifice, giving up a World Cup, likely his final one. And as much as I understand that you know, he'd come from Manchester United, where it would have been everything would have been perfect, Alex Ferguson, the money that was floating around, whereby the FIA are not anywhere comparable to the size of Manchester United as a football club. But the point is, is that Ireland couldn't have been that much of a shambles to have qualified above 
Holland and Portugal. And that was you know that Holland team had some fantastic players. You know you had Van der Sar, you had Edgar Davids, you had Patrick Kluivert. There was still the the great team that you know the Ajax ninety five team was still pretty much at its peak then. You know Portugal had some great players with Luis Figo. You don't finish top of that qualifying group with the squad they had without at some point having you know, a spirit, a tactical, a good manager, a good captain. You know, and the thing is, the training couldn't have been that bad in totality if you draw with the eventual finest Germany in the group stages and you lose on penalties in the knockout round to Spain, who had you know, lots of players from the great Real Madrid team of the mid-2000s. You had Casillas, you had Raul. The real, I suppose, deeper question is whether they could have gone further had they been able to, you know, had Hikine been able to constructively deal with the imperfections. You know, there is laudable elements to wanting the best and to feeling that, you know, maybe his viewpoint that Ireland were just there as tourists and they were just there to have a bit of a good time, see how far they went, but, you know, if they didn't, never mind. I, I can see merit in that, but... I don't see how him leaving somehow improves the situation. And yeah, you know, some his I think his viewpoint of like, well, I wanted to be honest with the fans who paid all this money to go out there. And it's like, well, I'm pretty sure the fans have the smarts to know that if you are going out to Japan, South Korea to follow the Irish national team in two thousand two World Cup, you're not expecting Ireland to win. You're just there to support your team, and you might well have wanted Roy Keane to have been there. And whether that team could have got just that bit further had they had Roy Keane there. The point is, is that did he have to leave at that point? Could he have not stayed even a week longer? Maybe things would have improved. But there was just always this sense that, you know, if you look at it, who has been the better manager, you know, throughout their career? Mick McCarthy or, you know, Roy Keane? It's Mick McCarthy. He's come up to a thousand games. He has had much more success both domestically and internationally than Roy Keane has ever had. You know, for all of this, I'm telling the truth, and his assertion about Roy, you know, about Mick McCarthy's managerial, you know, talents is fundamentally incorrect. I mean, Mick McCarthy, you know, you may has done some very difficult jobs and has stayed there for an extended period of time. If you look at, you know, Ipswich and you know, the success that Keane didn't have at Ipswich with the relative success that Mick McCarthy had. He got a huge amount of criticism at the time for keeping them in mid-table in the championship. But right now, Ipswich Town Football Club would take five years of mid-table in the championship straight off their, off, straight off your hands. They would bite your hand off for it. And so... There's so many times when there's just no element of control with Roy Keane. If he thinks something, it doesn't matter what the circumstances is, he will go through it, even if it's injurious to him or injurious to the team or injurious you know, to the nation. But if you think about you know his desire to get back into sort of management, you know, Basically, being you know doing all of these books, doing all of all of this baggage that comes up, all of these moments where where Roy Keane is almost this singular presence. You know, he's never seemingly part of a team. He's never part of a national team, Manchester United. He seems to be almost sort of a lone gunman of the West, and you can't really be a lone gunman of the West in an eleven-a-side 
you know, team sport. You know, he is an expert appraiser of football. His knowledge of football and the way how he explains it. When he's at his best as a pundit, he is compelling viewing. He is also compelling viewing when he's basically, you know, angry because Manchester United are losing and is ranting. Not particularly, you know, with just not particularly coherently, but it, you can just feel that Roy Keane is incredibly angry that the Manchester United team that he loves is doing badly. And I, I respect the fact that he sort of cuts through some of the desire that some pundits have to moderate their criticism, to avoid upsetting associates or future colleagues, as well as the sort of wider fan base of, of the club in question. But inevitably it's hard not to feel like the comfort of the studio when compared to the challenge of the dugout undermines the ferocity and the value of his punditry. You know, those that can do, those that can't pundit. Is Roy Keane that super hard? Is that whenever you've had a sort of crisis or a moment where things come to a head you know, at Sunderland, you know, Manchester United, at Ireland, he will walk. He will basically, you know, explode. He will fire all of his guns. It's not a case of if, it's a case of when. I mean, Roy Keane's masculinity is a one-way street. There's no ability to U-turn or to learn lessons. There's no room for weakness, self-doubt, failure, fallibility. You know, you know, failure becomes a moral, personal weakness. It's a failure on your part. You know, there's you know, limited understanding. You know, empathy is virtually non-existent. Football, in effect, becomes a zero-sum game. And in many ways... You know, Sky is commercialising his rant. It becomes a guilty pleasure. You are tacitly encouraging partisanship. You are encouraging the idea that when you discuss football, it needs to be someone with... saying, for instance, Manchester United are crap. And the other person needs to be saying, no, Manchester United are good. And it has to be confrontational. It has to be very much adversarial. So there's no nuance. Either man, you are crap, or they are good. There is no room for saying, well, Manchester United are very good at lots of things, but there are certain bits that are keeping them from you know, competing with Man City. In other words, to go 20-plus games unbeaten away is a fantastic record. Their home form, however, is not good enough to compete with Man City because Man City can win 15 games in a row. And that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has to be able to have a way of playing away, which you can keep, that's fine, but the way how you play at home, the selections that you make have to be different. Manchester United have to play in a way, different way at home to get the results they need to compete. They can finish in the top four playing the way that they do now, but that is not really in the medium to long term going to make Manchester United where they want to go. I mean, if you take the argument he had with you know Jamie Redknapp regarding you know the Tottenham squad, and this is the whole point, is that eventually is that Roy Keane comes out and says, look, as far as I'm concerned, there's only two really quality Spurs players in the squad. You know, Son and Harry. Everybody else is a bit useless. And in some ways, he is correct. In terms of, at that exact moment in time, you had two people that were playing at an absolute world-class level in terms of their statistics. And that was Son and Harry. And I've said in, in podcasts about this that deficiency ball was really only getting the best out of Son and Harry. 
However, that is not the suggestion that the entire Spurs squad is poor. You know, Hoiberg is one of the best defensive midfielders in the Premier League. You know, Tungay and Dumbele has done, you know, has performed, is clearly has fantastic gifts and talent and has performed well virtually the entire season. He has stepped up. You could see last season that there was talent. This year you finally, and you know that there is more to come. You know, you can look at, Celso, although he's injury prone, you know you were ignoring Gareth Bale's track record, and he's now starting to perform at that level. You know, Lloris, if you look at sort of most statistics, is one of the better goalkeepers in the Premiership this season. You know, and you have Sergio Regulon, who's one of the better left backs. So the point is, is that it's almost a little bit disingenuous. It is just basically hammering the point of you just wanting to say someone is crap. You know, yeah, this is a sort of joke that you know I said with some of my friends on the Zoom call is that all Roy Keane will ever tell you is is that United are crap, Spurs are crap, oh Man City are good, a great team, but they're crap in Europe. It is that kind of you know swirling sort of negativity that no one can ever reach Roy Keane's standard, which by implication means the standard that he had in the football teams that he played for, i.e. the great Manchester United team. It's almost that classic pundit trope of everything turned to shit. About 15 seconds after I retired personally. And the thing is the comment about... He then makes a comment about Regan saying, well, why was he sold by Real Madrid if he's that good? And it's it's lazy and extreme. Real Madrid are under financial pressure. And so as a result, you know, they had to sell someone to basically balance the books. Now, from a PR sense for Madrid-Linos, you know, Madrid fans, it's a lot easier not to miss Sergio Regulon who'd been on loan at Seville, than it was if they'd sold their current left-back. And so that's the point. It's not necessarily an on-field consideration. It's due to the you know, the COVID downturn and the, the debt that Real Madrid are holding institutionally. So basically, if you sell Regulon for £35 million, that's great, you've got that £35 million banked. You also have the buyback clause, which means if he has a wonder season at Spurs, you can then buy him back for a set amount of money. So it's a no-lose situation for, for Real Madrid. If he doesn't perform, you bank the £35 million when his value was highest. If he turns out to be at, you know, the best left-back in the world, you can sign him for, you know, 30, you know, for a side a little bit more than you received. But that's the point. Keane has completely ignored that in the sense of going, well, oh, he was sold by Real Madrid, therefore, ergo, he must not be very good. And at these points, there's a lack of depth to what he's doing. You know, it's almost as if literally you know, everything Roy Keane does from his head, the way how he dresses, the way how he sits, it, you know, the way how he addresses people uh, when he's a pundit, like the argument he had with sort of Jurgen Klopp earlier on in the season after a game when Liverpool won, and it's like, ooh, he was a bit tetchy. Imagine if he'd lost. Is that kind of you know baiting? You know, I always imagine that there's uh, in some ways, you know, everything that Roy Keane does is on the sort of the manliness scale. In other words, after he leaves the World Cup and gets sent home, you know, he and there's a media scrum outside his house. But every single day, Roy Keane walks his dock, you know, in the sense that he's unperturbed by this. You know, anybody else might, you know, want to go away for a week. But Roy Keane was going to stay at home. He was going to walk his dock every single day, regardless of there being 20, 30, 40 cameras around. Because I am Roy Keane. I will walk my dog no amount of photographers will bother me whatsoever. I am walking my dog. That is the manliest thing someone can do in that kind of situation. 
you know, his punditry is you know, constantly underwritten by the need to be dismissive, to maintain a detached air of unreasonably high standards. You know, there is some lazy assertions in there that that kind of counteract all of the good that he can do as a pundit. Which sort of leads you on to the, the question, you know, has Roy Keane just perpetuated the cycle of toxic masculinity that he was subjected to early in his career? In other words, you can sense that Graham Souness has at least understood that the way how he did it in his career is not necessarily the gold standard way of how the people in the next generation should do things and how things should be viewed. And so to me, in sort of conclusion, you know, Roy Keane really... Does Roy Keane represent 21st century masculinity? Or a positive image of what masculinity could stand for? Or is he really, in many ways, a sort of Barnum-esque attraction to the utterly self-defeating and destructive 21st century masculinity? Thank you for listening.